If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. We'll read Psalm 46 first and then uh, begin. The title of this psalm is for the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our, ref- our fortress, Selah. We've been studying how the Psalms teach us or train us in prayer. I don't usually give titles to sermons. Um, there are times when Dave has actually done that for me on the church website. But if I were to give a title to the sermon last week, it would be Praying Our Hate, which for many might seem problematic. We're willing enough to have the Psalms train us to teach us to respond to God who began the conversation, to use the appropriate language in prayer, to recognize the place of story or our life experiences in our praying, to understand the place of rhythm, we have the evening and we have the morning, and to accept the place of creation metaphors in prayer. But hate? What does hate have to do with prayer and how can we pray our hate? Hate is, in fact, the ugliest and most dangerous of our emotions. And I think it's because we're embarrassed by it that we try to shunt it off to the side and and not have it involved at all in our prayer lives. We deny it or we suppress it. And by the way, I mentioned this last week, dishonesty is often found in our prayers, that we try to pretend to be something we're not. And with hate, we want to put that aside so we seem to be people different than we truly are. But if, in fact, we do not pray our hate, as we find the psalmist doing, then we lose an essential insight and energy when it comes to battling evil. Some years ago, we looked at the issue of evil. And I suggested, based on uh, N.T. Wright's work, that there's a three-step progression when it comes to evil. The first is that we ignore it when it doesn't hit us in the face. That We pretend almost as though evil does not exist. And secondly, we are surprised when it does slap us in the face, when evil does come into our lives. And so lastly, we react in immature and dangerous ways as a result. Because of this progression, I think it also affects the way we see how God deals with evil. And oftentimes we think that God is actually wrong in how he responds to evil. Either that he overreacts or he doesn't react quickly enough or in strong enough ways that we think he should. 
when it comes to us responding in immature and dangerous ways, I think if we do not pray our hate of evil, you know, this explosion of outrage at when someone's physicality or their emotional state, when their holiness, if you wish, has been violated by someone, um, then we've really missed the boat here. The problem is we want an explanation. We want to know what evil really is. We want to know why it's here in the first place, why it's allowed to continue, why doesn't God just get rid of it, and how long is it going to go on? One could make the case that the Bible doesn't really answer most of these questions. The one question I think that is answered on some level is what evil really is. By the way, we should not be bothered let me back up. It does bother us, but we should not let us let this, these questions somehow overwhelm us that we're like, well, that's it. If the Bible doesn't have the answers to these questions, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, the Bible is not primarily there to answer our questions. It is to tell us what, in fact, God thinks we need to know. In the first five books of the Bible, we find two things. First of all, the story of what God does with regard to evil. And secondly, what evil really is. We have an extended definition that is found in the law. With regard to the first, how God deals with evil, in Genesis 1 through 11, we have three specific events and we see God dealing with them. We have human rebellion found in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Then we have human wickedness that is found beginning in chapter 6 and it results in the flood. And then we have human arrogance with the Tower of Babel. How does God respond? Well, in each case, he judges it. He stops it in its tracks before it goes too far. So Adam and Eve are put out of the garden, but they are not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge or the tree of life. They've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God stops them in their tracks, basically, and says, you're out of the garden. You cannot come back in. And then with the Tower of Babel, God confuses their speech so that they cannot continue on their building project. Judgment from God takes different forms. Adam and Eve are exiled. The flood wipes out humanity, except for Noah and his family. And then there's confusion and dispersal for the people at Babel. What do you think about this? What do we think about how God deals with evil? Well, when he exiles Adam and Eve, some people think that this is too much. Other people think it's not enough, because after all, he said, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And they didn't die. So it seems that God didn't keep his word. About the flood, I think people say this is just way, way too excessive. Because without being too judgmental, I think we would say that we live in a wicked world now. We see wickedness all around us. But to wipe out humanity because of human wickedness, that, that's not something we would do. And then when it comes to the Tower of Babel, this just seems like a really bizarre thing to do. You know, they all speak the same language and God says, okay, no, that's it. You're going to speak different languages and therefore you'll not be able to work together. It almost seems that God is paranoid that humanity might be able to achieve something he doesn't want. But why are we looking at the first five books of the Old Testament anyway when it comes to this? Well, just to remind you, to review a bit, we see that the, the Psalms are divided into five books. And this is done, I think, purposefully to match the five books of the law. You see, I think if the Psalms were just 150 Psalms without any divisions, 
we might fall into the, the sin of presumption. We would forget quite easily that God spoke first and then we respond in prayer. See, we tend to think that we begin the conversation and we're waiting for God to hurry up and answer us. You know, I'm, I'm saying something, I'm asking for something, and God does not respond. Well, when we have the five books of the law at the beginning of the Old Testament, and then we have the five books of prayer, if you wish, in the Psalms, we see them coming together. It should remind us that God speaks first, and then we respond in prayer. In the books of the law, we find what evil is. In 1 John 3, 4, uh, John tells us whoever breaks or whoever sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So do you want to know what evil is? Do you want to know what sin is? Well, look at what God says in the law. And that which breaks God's law is, in fact, sin. Today, in our prayer of confession, we acknowledge that we have sinned against God, specifically in light of the Ten Commandments. The editors who put the Psalms together had the courage, as we saw last week, to include portions that we would have taken out, uh, particularly the third stanza of our text last week in Psalm 137. Um, it's, it's a pleasant enough psalm in the first six verses, and then suddenly it just makes this weird turn, and it sounds horribly violent. Why do they include this? Well, the life of prayer, if we are faithful, takes us into difficult and dangerous country. A country in which we become aware that evil is far more extensive than we ever imagined. And it has woven itself deeply into the world. We didn't know things were this bad, I think, until we go to prayer. Our minds and emotions are not prepared to deal with this. We would prefer to be able to sit back, sit in a chair, and sort of uh, objectively look at reality in a detached way and say, well, that's not good, and that's pretty bad, and, and that may be evil, um, where we make a judgment rather than allowing God in his law to say what is right and what is wrong. By the way, when we, in fact, sit back in a detached way to look at evil or things we think are wrong, before we know it, we may find ourselves thinking, we might not say it, but thinking, yeah, they probably deserved it. They probably got what they deserved. People reap what they sow, they ask for it. The psalmists will not allow this. They will have none of it. The amount of suffering in the world is epidemic because of evil people. Because people have done evil things. And in prayer, we see it. It's not covered up by polite language or conventions that somehow allow us to sort of skim over the evil that is in the world. We see evil in our prayer and we hate it. In the same way that human need causes us to cry out to God for help, in prayer. In the same way, hate can cause us to cry out to God with regard to evil, what we see has been done in people's lives or perhaps in our lives. Hate is oftentimes the first sign that we care. Because if we didn't care, then I don't think we would feel that strongly about it. But when we see that people have been violated, dehumanized, used, and abused, 
would come angry and we were filled with hate. And that tells us something that, in fact, we care about these people. Because otherwise we would just sort of yeah, bless those people over there instead of being like the psalmist and praying our hate. This is not to say that hate is legitimized, but rather that it is used. Our hate is used by God to bring the awareness of evil into our lives. And we're like, oh my, this is wrong. This violates God's law, and I hate this because of what it does to other people. And then, by God's grace, we not only hate those things, but we have compassion for those who have been violated by the evil that others have done. The analogy, I think, that works is that hate is the match that lights the fire of our prayers. But hate is not the fuel of our prayers. So if you're going to make a fire, uh, you stack the wood, or if you're doing charcoal, you, know, you put it in a particular way, and match, you light a match, and it lights the fire, and then when the, if, it, if it gets going, then you no longer need a match. You don't build a pile of matches for a fire. In the same way, our prayers are not hate, hate, hate. But in fact, our anger and our hatred of evil is what sparks the fire. And then in prayer, we call out to God. The only thing that can sustain the fire, if you wish, is love. And so if you want to use the analogy, hate is the match and love is the fuel. And in prayer, we light that match because we are so angry at what has been done. And it lights our prayer. But the fuel of our prayers is to be love. Remember that Jesus told us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. Um, they may not want us to love them, and they may not want us to pray for them. Um, but this is what we are to do. One last thing, and then I'll move on. Praying our hate is not a matter of opinion. Um, I think this is one of the things that really bothers us, because oftentimes the things or the people we hate... This is not biblical, this is just our own feelings. I really don't like that person. Rather than saying, um, this person has violated God's law, this person has done something that is wrong. Um, we must look at the first five books of the Old Testament in order that we can read the five books of prayer that we find in the Psalms, and they come together. We need to ask ourselves, what offends God? Not what offends me, but what offends God? And what is wrong? And why should it be hated? And this should be the match that lights many of our, our prayers. If I had to imagine the biggest difference between how the Jews prayed, how the people of Israel prayed, and we pray today, I think it could be summarized in one word, and that is the word sila. Prayer in Israel was not left up to individuals to do as they more or less felt inclined. Common worship, public prayer, took precedence over private devotions, and we see this in the word Selah. The word Selah appears 71 times in the book of Psalms. It's scattered randomly. In our text today, we find it three different times. It's never within the text itself. It's more of a notation to the side. Uh, and the NIV tries to show this by having it in italics that it's sort of a, a marginal note that's been added to the text. 
What's fascinating to me is that no one is really sure what sila means, the exact meaning. Some people think it means something like to pause, that you need to stop a minute, take a breath, and think about what you've just said. Um, but we're really not sure. But I would argue that even if we don't know exactly what it means, it points out very, something very important, and that is this is something that's to be done publicly. So when we read Psalm 46, it should be done as a congregation, and then as a congregation, Selah. We take a moment and we pause. The Psalms were prayed by God's people as they came together to worship God. They teach us the prayers of God, or the prayers of God's people, are to be done as we gather in a community before God and in worship. Now, let's be clear, and I think if you've read the Psalms at all, you know that many of them began in solitude. They had their origins there. But the form in which they come to us, the way that they teach us to pray, is as a congregation, as a community of faith. These are the prayers of the community before God in worship. Prayer is fundamentally liturgical. And this word sila that is untranslated and untranslatable, apparently, scattered throughout the Psalms, will not let us forget this. It is directed at people as they come together to pray, as they come together to worship God. It is worth noting that the Bible does not give us a single prayer for private devotion. In fact, what we find are prayers that teach us how to pray together with God's people, not as individuals, but as a congregation. The community in prayer not the individual at prayer, is basic and primary. This is where we begin. But as Americans who are modern or postmodern, whichever you wish, we have reversed the order. And we think that what we do as, you know, privately is what in fact should shape what we do publicly, and it's, it's actually the reverse. We find in the Psalms that public prayer is to shape how we pray when we pray privately. We learn from the Psalms that prayer requires community. God calls his people to come before him to hear his word, to obey his commands and receive his blessings. We hear the call and we come together to worship. One author put it rather bluntly. He says the Psalms were not written for private use. This is something that is to be used by God's people as they come together. The idea or the assumption that prayer is something that we do when we are alone in solitude before God is, in fact, a persistent error, and no more so than it is today. Eugene Peterson, in writing about this, says, We imagine a lonely shepherd on the hills composing lyrics to the glory of God. We imagine a beleaguered, a beleaguered soul sinking in a swamp of trouble calling for help. But our imaginations betray us. We are part of something before we are anything, and never more so than when we pray. Prayer begins in community. Liturgy reminds us, or hopefully it does, that there are others to whom God speaks. When we come together as a congregation, God has been speaking to each of us throughout the week. He's been speaking to us, and when we come together... We answer together. 
even though we may have heard different things, that God has spoken to us in different ways. When we come together, we acknowledge that there are other Christians in the world, that there are other members of God's family in the world. As Peterson puts it, it reminds me that I am neither the only nor the favorite child. We know very little about the liturgy of Israel, and we don't know much more about the liturgy of the early church. But in a real sense, that's okay. What we need to know is, in fact, that there was liturgy, that there was a practice, um, that people came together at a particular time, at an appointed time, in appointed places, and they used the Psalms to pray together. So they came to a particular place at a particular time, and they prayed the Psalms as a community. In the words of Jesus, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. God is one, three in one. He is Trinity. His people are one, many members, but one body. And this is to be reflected in our praying. We're all unique. God has made us unique individuals. But he calls us to be his people and to love one another. If anything, liturgy is to be marked by courtesy. We don't go ahead. We don't do whatever it is we want. We do it together as God's people as we pray. Now, throughout the Psalms, we have different headings, different titles. One is to the choir master. This is found in 55 Psalms. Um, the t- when the temple was built and it was a place of prayer, a house of prayer, there was someone who was to direct worship, who was to direct prayer. And we see this, you know, I mean, it happens 55 times. It shows that the director was commonly involved in public prayer and public worship. Someone was assigned to lead worship when they came together. We don't think this way generally. We do when we come together on Sundays, but usually we think of prayer as something that we do. It's our own initiative. We have needs. We feel certain things. We might experience a deep longing for God, and so we pray. We might be filled with gratitude, and so we pray. We might be crushed by guilt or sense of guilt, and so we pray to God. Um, But in communal prayer... We don't take the initiative. If you think about it, when we come together, when we do the prayer of confession, for example, we do it together. Um, At certain points in the service, I say, let us pray, and then we pray together. Uh, I'm the one speaking or praying, but you are all there with me. Remember that prayer is answering speech. God speaks, and then we respond to him. And God's word has the primary place, the primacy in all things, in creation, in salvation, in judgment, in mercy, in grace, and in prayer. But if we're not careful, we will set this aside. Scripture will not become the most important thing, and instead it will be whatever it is we want to say. So that oftentimes we think that in prayer we get the first word. We begin the conversation But we realize this isn't the case when we come together on Sundays and we worship God together. Somebody else built this building, and Titus is in the process of rebuilding it for us. Someone else has established a time for prayer, though that seems to be drifting from Sunday to Sunday. Someone else tells us when we are to begin to pray. And all of this takes place in the context in which God's word 
is primary. It takes primacy. God speaks first, and then we respond. This is a good thing, because otherwise we will be at the mercy of the tyranny of our feelings. And our feelings are at the mercy of our glands, our, the weather, digestion, and, and all other types of things. Our feelings can lie and deceive. They can seduce us. But because our feelings are interior, it's the inner me, if you wish, and prayer is seen as an interior act, um, we begin to confuse feelings and prayer, or we begin to fuse them together. Um, But our feelings are no more spiritual than our muscles or tendons. See, we think that feelings are these ethereal things, and, and yet, isn't it strange how much they are affected by physicality? If you eat the wrong food, it can really affect your mood, your feelings. Uh, If you don't get a good night's sleep, it can affect how you feel. Feelings are important, okay, and we don't want to live without them. In the same way that our noses, our ears are important. But, you know, the length of my nose or my ears, the shape of my ears, does not in fact uh, tell you anything about my relationship with God. And to imagine that our emotions somehow do tell us, oh, I'm feeling particularly close to the Lord this morning, um, really, I think, is to misunderstand the place of our emotions or our feelings and our prayers. They're wonderful. They make us complex as human beings made in the image of God. But they are not prayer. So how do we affirm that our feelings are a gift from God and yet at the same time, not allow them to rule us. We do this when we come together and we pray together and somebody says, let us pray. If you read the Psalms, you will find the whole range of human emotions. They're all there. But they don't have the controlling word. God's word does. As much as emotions are expressed in the Psalms, they don't rule. They are not to rule us. If we insist on maintaining the initiative in prayer, praying when we feel like it, uh, according to what we feel that we need, um, eventually we'll be wiped out because we'll just be exhausted. Because this is a job that we are not supposed to have. And we will be people who pray in spurts. You know, when the feeling hits me, I need to pray, and you pray. But then when the feeling passes, then you're okay. And then later on, it hits you again, and then you pray again. Rather than a sense, with the Psalms, with the congregation, of praying regularly, that there is to be a rhythm to prayer, as we've seen. There is a choir master, if you wish, who leads us. Another title that we find in the Psalms has to do with the musical instruments that were to be played and the tunes that they were to be sung according to. So, singing is in fact a form of praying. Augustine is, a, is credited with saying, he who sings prays twice. Thus, prayers of the Psalms were often intended to be sung. Twenty-nine times, either an instrumental accompaniment is mentioned or a tune is assigned. In Psalm 4, which we looked at several weeks ago, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. The next psalm, Psalm 5, for the director of music for flutes, 
a psalm of David. And then we have tunes. Uh, psalm 8 for the director of music according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. Uh, psalm 9 for the director of music to the tune of Muthleben, uh, a psalm of David. And then in our psalm today, our text today, for the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. Singing brings us into rhythm and harmony with other members of the community. Song, in fact, as we sing, brings us into an organic relationship as we come together. We can, in fact, recover a sense of community and experience community through music. We've all been through different things this past week. But when we come together, we sing the hymns together. We may not know, when we're done singing at the end of the service, we may not know what each one has been through in the past week. But together, coming from different backgrounds, from different experiences, we have come together in prayer, in singing, we have sung together. As we sing together, we pray together. Now, here in closing, just just to be clear, we should pray when we are alone, as Jesus instructs us. I'm not saying that we should not. Um, Prayer, I think, should take place in every moment of our life, in the darkest moments, in the loneliest moments, uh, in the emotional moments of our lives. And there's also a time for silence. Um, Here in Psalm 46, uh, verse 10 is one of my favorite of the Psalms. Be still and know that I am God. There's a time of silence before God. But the structure in which we learn how to pray that we find in the Psalms is with God's people in the congregation. Because otherwise, why are we here? Why do we come together? Why do we bother? Why don't we just stay home and pray? Well, we could do that, but this is where we learn how to pray. This is where we're with God's people. And it prepares us for the rest of the week that we can pray when we are alone, but this is where we learn. It's not the other way around. We don't learn at home and then come to church. We come here, we learn, and then we continue to pray throughout the week. Even when we read or pray or sing the Psalms alone, which I think is what most people do most of the time. As I've told you before, that I read through the Psalms once a month. I do it alone. But even when I do it alone, I'm not alone because I'm part of a larger community. I'm a part of the people of God. Something that was written hundreds of years ago by people of God. Something that has been read and sung and chanted by God's people for centuries. I'm a part of. It isn't just Damon and the Psalms. It's the people of God and the Psalms. Left to ourselves, we are never more selfish than when we pray. Think about that a moment. Left to ourselves, we are never more selfish than when we pray. But the Psalms teach us to pray. They never leave us to ourselves. They tell us that we are part of the people of God. And liturgy, praying with God's people, defends us against the diseases of tyranny of our emotions and the isolation of our, prayer, our pride. 
it tells us that we are part of the people of God. And to me, I'm reminded of this by the word Selah. It's not just Damon in the Psalms, the people of God in the Psalms. And it trains us to pray with the people of God. Let's pray together. I thank you, Father, that you've not left us in the dark, though oftentimes we act that way. You, in fact, have spoken, and so we can respond in prayer. But we might not know how to pray as we should, and so we have an entire book, uh, the book of Psalms, that teaches us how to pray. If we would but listen living when and where we do, culturally and socially, we would prefer to do this on our own. We prefer to be individuals, not necessarily part of a congregation. And even when it comes to profoundly spiritual or religious matters, we'd rather do that on our own. Even when it comes to prayer. I thank you that you've taught us this is not the way it's to be. But in the Psalms we see that we learn to pray when we are with God's people. And we can pray deeply emotional prayers. As we saw last week, we can even pray our hate. But we don't do it alone. We're reminded that we are part of your people. It's always been your plan to have a people beginning with Abraham. Let's just have a collection of individuals. I thank you that you do hear each of us individually, that you do speak to each of us individually, but you call us together to be reminded that we are a people, a body. We don't stand alone. I thank you for your great patience, your, your willingness to listen to badly prayed prayers, miserably shaped prayers, deeply self-centered prayers, how gracious you are to us. But with the disciples we say, teach us to pray, that we might, in answering what you have said, pray as we should. Thank you for bringing us together today, for calling us to come together to worship you. We pray for those that aren't with us, for those that are traveling, for those that are sick. Uh, think in a particular way for Lonnie, uh, of Mike, uh, Pascual is coming back, for Ruth in the Philippines. Uh, bring them back to us safely. Now, may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.